this morning as I stand before you. I really feel that this is a real awesome opportunity that God has given to me. Thank you for ministering to me with your music. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is have a little talk with you, and then on Friday I'm going to try to get into a text and, and see what the Holy Spirit of God will share with us. There I stood. I had never, ever stood there before in my life. I was looking about. I, I thought perhaps it was over there someplace. And as I wandered over in that direction, finally, finally after a long search, I cried out with a loud voice, Honey! Honey! It's over here! And there she came to join me. And I put my arm around her and we leaned down. And we would read together that which we had read before, but we had never ever seen it there. I had been told that if I found it, it would speak to my heart in a way that once again I would be reminded that we have been preceded by some mighty men of God. There we read together some words that evidently had meant an awful lot to that man. Ooh, it's written of that man that he robbed hell of over one million souls. And so we read together the epitaph. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. As we got to thinking about that, as we began to talk about it and, and began to admit that astrophysicists tell us that the world is passing away. Ecologists tell us that the world is passing away. All kinds of scholars in leading universities all over the world tell us that the world is getting very, very old. It's passing away. And John wrote in 1 John, the second chapter, those words, and the world is passing away. Not too long ago, I was invited to a large gathering. There were over 20,000 people. It was at the University of Iowa. They were having a national championship wrestling. And there I was able to come in contact with some men and women of great reputation. As we met together and they found out what I was doing in my life, they asked a question that I am asked just about every place I go. As we began to have some serious talk, we began to talk about the world and the fact that it's passing away. And these PhDs, sat and looked up to me and said, how would you best describe the world in which we are living? 
And I looked at them and I said, I think probably I would start by saying that something like this, the world that we're living in is very, very uptight. Eight years ago, when my wife and I used to go into the Soviet Union and begin to minister to those people that were the underground Christians, I noticed that that whole nation was so wound up so tight that you would have to spell the word uptight in capital letters all the way through with about a dozen exclamation points. Then I remember having the first evangelistic crusade in Romania from the time of the communists. And I remember that whole city gathering in a barn-like building as they came and walked their way, everyone being noticed and being marked by the KGB. But I noticed that Romania was uptight. And then I would go to Brazil. And I would notice Brazil was uptight. And I would go to China, and China was uptight. And then I'd get off the plane at New York City. I'm wanting to tell you that I have two Ph.D. friends that has as their profession to minister to first-line administrators. How do we cope in the marketplace today? Because we are so uptight that nine years ago, brand new nomenclature had to leap from our souls. It was called burnout. Stress and pressure has got so bad worldwide that we are a world that can probably be best described as a world that is uptight. But I don't want to stop there. I didn't stop there with them, and I'll not stop there with you. I would say that we are probably going to have to further describe the world that we are living in as a world that is filled with unrest. Time magazine has recorded in the last 48 months over one million men and women have laid their lives down in war. I mean, we just get one theater of the world, negotiate with peace, having some kinds of arms treaty, and then all of a sudden another platform, another theater, another zone of the world is on fire from a cold war to a hot, torrid, blazing war where men and women are giving their lives for the cause of freedom. We are a world that is filled with unrest. But I want to go further with you as I did with them. I think probably we would also have to say that it is not only an uptight world and a world that is filled with unrest. But we would probably have to go further and say the world is very, very unhappy. It's true that we can go from time to time to a modern-day Disney world. It's true that the world can go off on several emotional binges. It's true that the world can manufacture a smile once in a while, but by and large, the uptight world, the world that's filled with unrest, has sobered us to the place 
that we are by and large 5.3 billion people that are quite unhappy. But would we go on any further? I think we would. I think probably we'd have to go one further step further or maybe two or three or four or five. Let me cover two more with you. I think we best describe the world in which we are living as not only uptight and filled with unrest and very unhappy, but extremely ungodly. We can't go into the ramifications of all of the impact of the fall of man, but you do not have to be a rocket scientist to look at the bottom line and say the world is rocking and reeling. It's inebriated with its sin, its extreme ungodliness. The symptoms of which make me boldly announce that when I landed in Los Angeles yesterday, I had to say, as I would say to the most rural place in the state of California, the most used name yesterday in Los Angeles was not Jimmy and John, but it was God, and they were damning Him. And we have gotten so ungodly that the second most used name was not Sarah or Sam, but it was Jesus Christ, and they were cursing Him. Oh, the audacity of man that is created in the image of God to have such, such, a spirit that he would stand in the face of his peers and without conscience damn a holy God. And I think probably we will pause with the next one. Although I could go on and describe the world in which we are living, let me just mention one other thing. We also would describe the world as a world that is coming unglued. It is coming unglued economically. It is coming unglued spiritually. It is coming unglued morally. On two different occasions, I've received unsolicited phone calls to the number one house in the United States of America. I remember coming back out of the Eastern Bloc before the walls came down and I had been away for 16 days. And I'd been holding some crusades in these cities in Eastern Europe. And the very first telephone booth I found in a free country, I went into it to try to call my sweetheart. Just to let her know that everything is okay and I'm on my way home. I finally made contact with my Ruthie and Ruthie, she just wanted to hear a sentence or two. And then she said, Honey, the Secretary of the State has called the house and he wants you to come immediately to the big house. I went to that number one house in the United States of America and I listened 
to some of the greatest minds and businessmen, 70 of them who had gathered together in the White House. And then I listened to the people that you watch on television. And I am ready to announce to you right now that though they didn't use the word, what they were talking about is living in the midst of a world that was coming unglued. Perhaps that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind. Perhaps that's why the Holy Spirit of God moved Paul to write some words that I want to peek at with you this morning. These words are found probably in one of the finest chapters that Paul ever wrote in the Bible. The reason why I mention that, since all of his chapters are of great import, is because all of Christian doctrine centers around this chapter. All of Christian doctrine centers around this chapter. And of course, some of you know exactly where that's located. You have your text with you this morning. I'd like for you to open to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you have the greatest treatise recorded any place in the Bible on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, students, all Christian doctrine revolves around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said it well. He said, if Jesus Christ has not arisen or arose from the grave, Indeed, my faith and our faith is in vain. I like to say this to people who are primarily unconverted, and I, I want to say it to you. You see, our faith, our Christian faith, is not something that we hope about or perhaps this thing happened, but it is central to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is more evidence that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again than there is evidence that George Washington was the President of the United States of America. We hold here in our hands that a divine revelation, God's message, It's a divine book that was authored by the Holy Spirit of God and Paul was led to write this section on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And right in the midst of this dissertation, there is a verse that seems to be totally out of place. I mean, you're reading along and then all of a sudden, boy, you're hit with something that doesn't look as though it belongs there. And I'd like to sort of introduce that to you this morning. 
for that verse is verse 34. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, it says these words. 1 Corinthians 15:34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I want to just, if I can, this morning, just take a few minutes and talk to you a little bit about the opening remarks of that verse. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was was not aware also that the world in which he was living in then was in grave trouble. And, and he was addressing a church that was very, very carnal. And he's writing back to this church that he was in love with. And, and he says to that church, those group of believers there in the city of Corinth, He initially says one word of great significance. It's in the word awake. It's how the verse begins. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word appears. Now, I'm not talking about awake. I'm talking about this word that is translated awake. The connotation of which is, I think, threefold. First of all, that word awake that is used here carries the meaning or the connotation of a crisis. It wasn't, uh, you men and women at Corinth, you're asleep and I want you to awake out of your sleep. It is a, it's a cry. There's a crisis. And he is trying to address that band of believers there at Corinth. And, and he says this thing is serious. Something terrible has taken place. And I want you to awake. not only carries that word of crisis, the connotation of the crisis, but it can also carry a connotation of emergency. There's an emergency that is before us as a, a group of believers there at Corinth. Many of you have studied history and historians say that Corinth was a cesspool of ungodliness. And Paul goes in to Corinth and many of his believers said, don't bother with Corinth. And he saw the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit of God move in that city. And little men and women of no notoriety and big men and women of big notoriety and a lot of in-between ones were marvelously transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Oh, the marvelous, awesome acts of God in Corinth as He saw the power of the Gospel transforming lives. And there was a bonding. There was a tremendous love 
that developed between those believers and the Apostle Paul. And in the word awake, he, he cries out with a loud voice. That's the only way it can properly be read. It's something like this. Awake! There's a crisis. There is an emergency. There's one other connotation that is in that word. And it is that of urgency. Awake! There's, there's an urgency about this crisis. And so the Apostle Paul was delivering his soul evidently about the world in which he then lived. He was so very concerned about the believers. And I want to pause here, and I know I'm in Mustang country, and I know I'm in Southern California and all of that, but I want to stand before you and plead with you. I know you're in a Christian liberal arts college. I don't know many of you could be at a secular university studying, but would you please join a growing number of collegiates throughout the United States of America attending Christian liberal arts colleges to cry out unto God, Oh God, give me that same kind of spirit that the Apostle Paul was speaking of here. May I be an awake kind of a Christian. There's a crisis going on then in the first century and now in the 20th century. All you have to do is stand up on your tiptoes. You don't have to look too far or remember too far back when the blazing fires of Los Angeles reminded us that the world that we're living in is in real trouble. But he goes on here and he says something that I think is of really great significance to the church at Corinth. He says in that text, Awake to righteousness. And the reason why that's so significant is because though he gives in his introductory words of this book, commendation, it doesn't travel too far, too many verses, before he begins to castigate those Christians for their carnality. He's saying, you, you guys there at Corinth, you've divided over, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. It's not too unlike the 20th century. And they had divided on the spiritual gifts. There were some going around saying, boy, oh boy, I spoke in tongues yesterday. And inferring that you didn't. And all of the other gifts that were manifested and blown way out of proportion. And the Apostle Paul, he's got to address with that subject. And then he comes to the fidelity of marriage in this book. He talks his whole matter about how you should remain pure if you are single. 
even goes on to say in this book that if you cannot remain pure, if that fire is so strong, it's best that you get married. And then he says, and you who are married, you have been made for one another and you guard that relationship with all jealousy. No wonder, he says here in this chapter, in the chapter where all Christian doctrine pivots, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, awake to righteousness. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a grown man cry? I have. I, I remember not too many months ago, a guy collapsing in my arms as he weeps and he wails because of the tragedy that had come into his home. He lost his first wife. And now his 11-year-old daughter has died. Eighteen months before that, we buried his eight-year-old daughter. A year before that, his five-year-old daughter was stricken with cancer and taken. That was my pastor. I, I, he collapsed in my arms and began to weep and wail. Have you ever heard a grown man cry? I have. I've walked the streets of Hong Kong with my wife here on this side and that big six-foot-four missionary over here on this side. And all of a sudden, that big six-foot-four missionary collapses and falls on my shoulder. And this is what he cries. I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can make it. And he weeps. I don't think I can make it. And he can't. His wife was killed as a missionary for Jesus Christ. He's gone through all kinds of heartaches and tragedies. And five years has gone by and he's walked by himself and he's reared those five kids by himself. And now it's got to him. And this grown man is crying, I report to you, if you do any kind of an examination. This tiny little verse that seems so out of place, he begins to cry, and his first cry is, Help! Awake. And his second cry is, Holiness! Right. Apostle Paul, looking at the conditions that had surreptitiously come into the church and nearly destroyed it, is now, as a grown man, crying, righteousness, righteousness, godliness, godliness, holiness, holiness. probably the greatest single thing that you and I have to deal with is the same thing 
that the Corinths were having problems with our flesh. I mean, it even got to the Apostle Paul. You don't live the Christian life too long before you realize that you begin to, from time to time, make advances and, and spiritual steps and sometimes they're baby steps and then sometimes elephant steps and then sometimes, very unexpectedly, you fall. I remember, if it was as if it were yesterday, I walked in here and the band began to play, you know. And I looked at, at Dave Maddox and I whispered in his ear, three weeks after I was converted to Jesus Christ, I formed a 14-piece band. It, it, was, it was at least as good as that one. And then we had, we, I, had to, I had the state, state champion drummer, Wes Fromick. He was in med school and, and he'd gotten saved and I got saved, you know. And, and then we, we had some really average musicians and, and a couple that were sort of special. And, and man, we began to go across the state of Iowa where I was converted. Boy, those were the early days in my Christian life. And, and I, it was so wonderful to be forgiven. It was such a fantastic thing to know that our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then there was David Black. He was also studying in med school. He was going to be a surgeon. And, and he got saved. And uh, we decided we were going to have a radio program. So we had the band and we had a radio program. We just continued to go. And all of us taking baby steps and a few elephant steps. And then I noticed from time to time I sinned secretly. I never announced to anyone, man, I, I sinned. I would sin secretly. And, and I'd fall. And I can see it, and you can see it in your mind's eye. I had not stood on that ground before, but before I knew it, I was crying out, Oh, God, please forgive me. With all the sincerity that I could manufacture in my soul where I really live, God, please forgive me. You can see it. The holy, almighty God reaches down from heaven and puts His loving arms around me and picks me up. And with His holy, loving hands, He begins to wipe me off. And he takes my hands that sometimes were scarred from the fall. And, and he puts medicine on it so there's proper healing. And then he says, Wendell, press on! That's happened to everyone here. I remember one time reading the Bible and I came across these words that blessed me and encouraged me and I, I shouted out, Oh, glory to God! Oh, God, thank You! I read it with my own eyes, otherwise I couldn't report it to you. It said, Though a man falls seven times, 
the Lord lifted me up. I cannot report how many times the believers had fallen in Corinth, but I can report in the first century they had problems with their flesh, and in the 20th century we have problems with our flesh, and this grown man cries out, not only awake, but he cries out righteousness. That's the way we go. Um, just two weeks ago, I was in Dallas, and I was asked to go there because I was going to speak uh, at the Cowboys and uh, Redskins football game, and, and uh, I was sort of scared like I was when I first stood up here on the platform, and, and I was sort of walking back and forth, and there was nobody in the room, and, and I was waiting for it to all fill up, you know, and I've got to know some of those guys pretty well, and all of a sudden a guy walked in. He's a big old guy, six foot four. On December the 8th, I met him for the very first time. They had flown my wife and I to Phoenix, and, and we were going to speak to the Phoenix Cardinals and that other football team. I got through speaking, I said, Now all of you men that want to get saved, you want to turn from your wicked ways, you want to be forgiven of all your sins, I want you to stand before all the other men in this room, and I want you to walk forward and evidence your sincerity publicly. And three of those big dudes got up, and they walked forward. And I went over here, I'll be bringing probably my other New Testament on Friday. This one's brown, my other one's black, and I had my black one with me. And I get over there and I open it up for these two guys. You sort of got to reach up a little bit these days to let them see the Bible on their level. And I was showing it to them over there, and then all of a sudden, out of my peripheral vision, I can see my sweetheart, Ruthie. Ruthie was a professional athlete. That's my mistress. She knows she's been down that road. She was 32 years old when she was gloriously converted to Christ. And there was a guy six foot nine. My wife's five foot one. She's holding the Bible up too. Tears are coming down that guy's cheeks, and she led him to Jesus Christ. And standing there in that room two weeks ago was this guy that my wife had introduced to Jesus Christ, and he said, that, I'm just, I, I, My wife says I'm a brand new man, and my heart's clean, and I'm doing well, but he said, From time to time, I don't tell anybody, but I think evil thoughts. I'd have stopped right now and start over there. Has that been your experience, buddy? And then and I'd finally get to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul said, Yeah, I have the same problem. But that's no excuse. Is 
Have you ever seen a grown man cry? Have you ever heard a grown man cry? The Apostle Paul cries out in this passage of Scripture for holiness. Standing there in the city of Dallas two weeks ago in that room, this big old six foot nine guy, he puts his arm on my shoulder and he says these words. He said, I've spent all of my life hurting the heart of God. And now all I want to do is try as much as I can to make him proud of me. And I got to thinking about it. Skin is not my color. He was reared way down in the deep south in another culture. He made some bad decisions in life. He got in trouble because he started running with the wrong group. And then all of a sudden he heard the voice of God in Phoenix, Arizona, last December year. And he responded. God's given him a thinking heart. All I want to do is live the rest of my life. Let's see if I can make God proud. I wonder how it is with you. Well, I know it's early in the semester. I know we're just getting started. I know there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. I know in two weeks we're going to cut out of here and we're going to get involved in missionary ministry. But I want to tell you, if we do, we had better be cleaned up. We better have a life that's pursuing rightness. So that we can be a vessel in His mighty hand. So that indeed God can take us as young ladies and young men. And as puny and as insignificant as we are, out of our innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And when you're not even probably aware of it, this old boy or this young lady will take the cup of her life and reach out and drink from the waters that flow from your innermost being. And once they taste of the spiritual water, they shall never thirst again. Never! I wish my sweetheart was here. I'd say, honey, come on up here right now. Tell these dudes here, please tell these guys. What a wonderful thing it is to give all of your lives without reservation, taking your hands on saying, God, I'm not much, but if you can take my life, I want it to be in use. I want it to be invested 
in a way that's going to count for eternity. Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God now will seal to our hearts and minds this whole matter that we're living in a world. We are living in a world that's passing away. Serious. Oh God, we are not very much other than Christ lives in us. We want Him to be manifested through our lives. And so we pray for Your honor and glory that our lives will be consumed in a way that great glory and honor will be brought to Yourself and that Your Son will be exalted and that thousands upon thousands upon thousands will hear the great message and be gloriously born from above. We utter this prayer in the name of Jesus and with thanksgiving for the privilege of being together like this. We praise you for the music. We praise you, God, for the testimonies. We praise you, O oh God, for the special music. And we praise you for the message.